book of Luke. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 1. We've started there since the first of the year, and we, as a church, have committed to preaching systematically and expositionally through the entire gospel of Luke. Now, uh, it's June, almost July, heading into July, and uh, we're getting to the halfway point of chapter 1. There have been some pastors that take uh, up to 13 years. We're in no hurry, so we are going to preach God's word until he returns or he calls us home. So we're in Dr. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, looking at verses 46 through 56 this morning. And uh, as I said, we're kind of like on our, uh, a long journey, and we're at the halfway point at this po- uh, so far. But I think hopefully for most of us, we've seen how God is completely faithful by showing that the salvation that was predicted by the prophets has indeed arrived. The Messiah, the Deliverer, has come, just as God had planned and just as he had promised. The promises that he made through the prophetic voices are going to be promises kept so that whether Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female, all people everywhere will have access through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew, Mark, Luke in your New Testament, the right side of your Bible. Um, for those of you who are just visiting for the first time, just if you have uh, unruly children, it's okay. We will, we will go through all of that. Uh, for those of you who have unruly teenagers, uh, we do have a cry room in the back. It does have the... Uh, uh, service pipe through there, so you can still listen, but uh, don't feel obligated to have to leave, so we'll just, we'll just talk louder. But anyway, I just want to let you know that we're in chapter 1, verses 46 through 56 again, and if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, let's do so. Luke chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 46. God's Word says this, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is such a great source of comfort for us, Lord. We are thankful for men who would die in the past to bring us your word that we have today. Lord, we want to lift high your name here this morning. So help our minds to learn more about you so that we can stand in all of you and be utterly persuaded that there is nothing worthy in this world to pursue other than the glory in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And may we magnify and glorify your name. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
There's no doubt that many of you have seen uh, movies where there's non-stops action and suspense and drama, and then all of a sudden, one of the characters or a group of characters just certain, suddenly breaks out into song. Movies like Oklahoma or even Doris Day's Calamity Jane or even the highest grossing animated film of all time, Frozen, is full of songs that explain or elaborate the story with which they're told. And it seems like sometimes we remember those songs more often than we actually do the stories in which they're told, such as, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from the movie Oklahoma, or The Black Hills of Dakota from Calamity Jane, or dare I even mention it, Do You Want to Build a Snowman from Most of You Know Where. It seems by and large that we are attracted to, and we just love stories that are intertwined with songs. And the Gospel of Luke is no different. There are several interruptions where the characters break out into song and hymns and praise, and they function like a modern musical. Some have called Luke's Gospel the singing gospel because before we even get to chapter 3, we're going to see four spirit-inspired hymns celebrating the arrival of God's salvation. We have Mary's this morning that we're looking at. Later on, we'll have Zacharias's praise in verse 68. There's the heavenly host in chapter 2, verse 14, and Simeon's in chapter 2, verse 49. Now, as we have covered over the last few weeks, we've moved from the birth of John the Baptist, that narrative, into the narrative of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we work through the comparisons and the contrast of those two. And we've sort of been looking at those two narratives in two different ways, which most of you probably haven't really noticed, but I'll give you a little hint as to how we've been doing that. First of all, we've been doing a little bit of systematic theology. We've been looking at these two accounts and looking at what they have to say about different points of doctrine throughout the entirety of Scripture. Systematic theology essentially seeks to look at all of Scripture and to understand what it is saying about a particular point in a particular way. Theology itself, in essence, is the study of the knowledge of God. And as I mentioned last week, every single one of us in this room is a theologian. You probably don't think of yourself as one. You probably don't think, I'm no theologian, but every single one of us has to have a knowledge of God. God said it is within him in Romans 1. And you may not think of yourself as one, and some of you are seeking to know if there is a God, and then others of you are seeking to know him better. And so when we look at the entirety of Scripture at, say, uh, does God know the thoughts and intentions of Zachariah's heart or Mary's heart, and we search the Scriptures to, to see what God has said about the subject of God's omniscience, right? We look at the entirety of Scripture on the omniscience of God, then we develop doctrine based upon that. We do that in a systematic way. So we do systematic theology. The second way we do it is we've been looking at the accounts through the lens of biblical theology. So systematic theology and biblical theology. Biblical theology seeks to understand the unfolding revelation of God's redemptive plan for mankind over time. So, when we ask whether or not it's important for you to hold to the doctrine of the virgin birth, we have to look at Isaiah and say, he said, behold, a virgin shall be with child. And so we have to 
hold to the virgin birth because we're looking at it in a biblical theology way. We look at the big picture, if you will, and try to build our theology upon that. So we do systematic theology that looks at parts of doctrine or truths one at a time, and we look at them thematically. And then we look at it in a biblical theology way, which seeks to look at the historical nature or truth chronologically. And so last week, if you remember, we saw a set of three responses to the message that Gabriel had brought to Mary and how Luke had intertwined those narratives for us. We saw Mary's response and how she pursued the message that Gabriel had brought to her. And we saw that, that how that would have been a great comfort to her as she could have been punished under Jewish law and to be put to death by stoning for being unmarried and young. And God sought to comfort her. He did that by revealing to her through the angel Gabriel that her relative Elizabeth, who was old and she was barren, had also conceived. And that she was actually six months pregnant. And so after that angel departed, Mary sought out Elizabeth. She took a 75-mile journey to go into the hill country of Judea. Then we saw Elizabeth's response. And how she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice. And she was blessed beyond measure that Mary, who was carrying the Messiah, would come and visit her. She opens her mouth and is just filled with praise. And as she recognizes the holiness of the child that is inside the womb of Mary, she can't restrain herself. As she hears Mary's story of Gabriel's visitation, and she looks down at her womb, and she sees this little baby that she's carrying, and she's looking at her husband, Zacharias, who has been struck mute by the, Gabriel, or the angel Gabriel, and he can't speak to her after serving in the temple, and she's just overwhelmed with spirit-inspired praise. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then lastly, we saw John's response. If you remember, John is six months old in the womb, and he's about a pound and a half, and he's about 13 inches long. His bones are formed, and his hands are starting to grasp at things, umbilical cords in his hands, and all the bones of his inner ear are formed. And it says that when Mary arrives, and the voice of Mary reached Elizabeth's ear, that the baby leaped in her womb. But this, was a, this leap inside of her by little John was a leap of joy. Remember, John was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That's what verse 15 told us back in chapter 1. And his response as Mary starts to talk confirms that there's something supernatural going on here. This isn't just an old lady and a young girl getting pregnant. This is something much, much greater than that. This is the Messiah. This is the deliverer that was promised. The foretold and promised redeemer of Israel is here. And so as Mary hears the message from the angel Gabriel, she runs to her, her relative Elizabeth. And as she hears her righteous and godly relative tell her that the fruit of her womb is blessed and that she is blessed among women for being able to carry the Messiah... And as she hears Elizabeth tell her that John is inside of her womb and is just leaping for joy at the sound of her voice, and how she is blessed for believing that what would be fulfilled through her as spoken by the Lord, Mary is just overwhelmed with praise. 
And so as we look at our text, our text, by the way, is called the Magnificat. It actually has a longer Latin name, but it's abbreviated the Magnificat, and is called that because of the first word in the Latin translation, and it simply just means magnifies. But I want to look at our text in a couple different ways here. First of all, we're going to look at three very clear distinctions. The first one being from verses 46 through 49, and how they are a praise for God's work through Mary. The second one is verses 50 through 53, and how they are a praise for God's work for all. And then the third way we're going to look at it is verses 54 through 55, and how they are praised for God's work for Israel. And as we're doing that, I want to ask some questions of this text. First of all, what does it tell us about Mary? And the second one, and more importantly, is what does it tell us about God? So that's my ambition this morning, and so let's look at verses 46 through 49 first. Verse 46 reads, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. First of all, the text tells us, my soul exalts the Lord. Now, the word soul here in the Greek is the word suhe, which is spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E, which is where we get the word psyche. Now, it's used about a hundred times, and it's translated throughout the New Testament as soul and life and mind and heart. It's sometimes used to describe the breath of life or the seat of feelings and desires within us. And as it applies to Mary... She is saying here that the innermost part of my being, from the depths of my soul, down deep from the wellsprings of my very existence, I want to exalt the Lord. She's just overwhelmed with everything that has just been said to her by Gabriel, that she's heard from Elizabeth and she's seen from this pregnancy. And so from her heart and her soul, she wants to magnify the Lord. She's just bursting forth with praise for, to God. And it isn't a superficial, external, outward appearance, Sunday morning only, lukewarm praise that she's doing here. It's coming from deep down inside of her soul. Jesus Christ, he used the same word when he was asked by one of the scribes in Mark chapter 8, 29 and 30. And he asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And verse 29 of Mark 8 says, Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And in verse 30 he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your suhe, your soul, and all of your mind and all of your strength. What was he saying? He was saying that the totality of your being should be for loving God. It's not just a whimsical, occasional pursuit, but from the depths of your soul, there should be a yearning for greater and greater manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your life. There should be a desire from deep within your soul to pursue the desires of Christ. 
And there should be from the fountain of your life an unquenchable fire for the glory of God. Henry Scougal, a Puritan and a Scottish theologian, he wrote in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man in the 1600s, he wrote this about the love of God when he was 27 years old, one year before his death at age 28. He said this, quote, The love of God is a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections, which makes the soul resign and sacrifice itself wholly unto him, desiring above all to please him, and delighting in nothing so much as in fellowship and communion with him, and being ready to do or to suffer anything for his sake or at his pleasure. Close quote. This is Mary. Is this you this morning? Can you say this about yourself? Are you ready to do or to suffer anything for his sake or his pleasure? Does your soul, the innermost part of your being, cause you to resign yourself wholly unto him? Are you ready to proclaim just as Mary did? Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done according to your word. Mary was. And this is how she can say that her soul exalts the Lord. And just like Jesus Christ was calling for a completeness of our being and our love of God in Mark 8.30, Mary also does the same thing. And she expresses a completeness in, the, in her exaltation of God. Verse 47 says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Not only my soul exalts the Lord, but my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary is saying here that her spirit has rejoiced in God. Now, this isn't to say that there's a difference between the soul and the spirit. In fact, the word spirit here is pneuma in the Greek, and it sometimes is translated soul. In Hebrews 4.12, it uses both of these terms together, and it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and is piercing as far as divisions of the soul and the spirit and joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. There isn't a separate soul within you and a separate spirit within you, just like you can't separate your thoughts and your intentions. But what Mary is expounding on here is by saying that her spirit has rejoiced in God is simply an expression of the completeness of her praise. The totality of her being is rejoicing in and delighting in God. And then I want you to notice what she rejoices in in verse 47. It says, God, my Savior. We mentioned this before. And I think it bears repeating. Mary is not a co-redemptrix. She is not, as Catholics claim, a co-redeemer with Christ. Listen to what a a prominent California-based Catholic center has said about Mary as co-redeemer. Listen to this. Quote, the salvation of humanity. This is a Catholic theologian. The salvation of humanity was accomplished by God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Sounds very good, right? The passion and death of Christ... Our soul redeemer was not only sufficient, but superabundant satisfaction of human guilt 
and the consequence debt of punishment. Sounds not too shabby, right? Except for Christ probably did, died a little bit more from just guilt. But we'll digress. That's not what we're after here. But listen to what they say next about Mary. But God will that this work of salvation be accomplished through the collaboration of a woman. You see where they're going here? While respecting her free will. Now, first of all, I have to ask, at what point in our narrative and at what point in our text did the angel Gabriel ask Mary anything? I don't recall Gabriel asking her if it was okay that she have the Holy Spirit come upon her and to allow her to birth Jesus to occur through her. Really? Her free will? But if salvation occurred through the collaboration of a woman, meaning Mary, what about Acts 4, 27 and 28? Acts 4.27 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So if Mary is a co-redeemer because she collaborated with God and exercised her free will so salvation could be accomplished, doesn't that mean that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel are also co-redeemers as well? I mean, they exercise their free will by putting Jesus Christ to death. Uh, Shouldn't the Catholic Church give them the same title as co-redeemers? The Catholic theology just goes from bad to worse in its theology of Mary and from her own immaculate conception, perpetual virginity, and her being a co-redeemer and mediator for man. There are millions of lost people in the Catholic Church worshiping a deceased, humble, willing servant of the Lord. But Mary recognized her own sinfulness and her own need for divine grace by saying that she has rejoiced in God, my Savior, We can recognize that she is in need of a Savior because of the personal pronoun that she uses there, my. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Especially those of you who are here with your parents this morning. To be able to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Maybe you're only here this morning because this is what mom and dad do on Sunday morning. But can you say, along with Mary, that God is my Savior, young ones? Is it personal for you? It's one thing to say that Jesus is my mom and dad's Savior, but is Jesus Christ your Savior? You see, you won't ride to heaven on the coattails of your parents or your grandparents. Jesus isn't going to ask you your mom and dad's name and say that he knew them very well and they were walking blamelessly and righteously in all the commandments of the Lord. And so... You too must be okay. But have you submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ? There is no other name given among men by which we may be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. Your parents' name is not going to save you. Going to church regularly is not going to save you. Your dad being a pastor is not going to save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Are you ready to say to God, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord? Have you made him your Savior? Can you say that he is mine and I am his? 
Now, Mary, she's very familiar with the Old Testament concept of salvation of the Lord. In fact, Mary is very familiar with the Word of God as her praise in these Nine verses contain some 15 references or allusions to the Old Testament. Quite possibly, she might have been familiar with Micah 7.7, 7, which says, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Or maybe she thought of Isaiah 12.2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. And most likely, she'd have been familiar with Psalm 25, 5, which says, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. But most likely, as we see the parallel of what she's saying here, she probably had Habakkuk 3.18 on her mind. Listen to this. Yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Do you see the parallels there with what Mary's saying? Mary recognizes that she is in need of a Savior. She recognized that what God is doing by providing a son named Jesus, whose name literally means what? It means Savior. She recognizes that she, too, is a sinner. Now... We are going to move pretty quickly to be able to get through these 10 verses because I'll be honest with you, I could have camped out on one or two, but we're going to get through 10. So let's look at verses 48 through 49 as we see how Mary sets forth the basis or the why of her praise. Verse 48 through 49 says, For he has regarded for the humble state of his bond slave, for behold, from this time on all generations count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. In true humility, Mary expresses her gratefulness to God for regarding her lowly state. Mary didn't enjoy a high social position. She wasn't recognized socially and culturally as somebody of great importance. She was young, she was a woman, and she lived in Galilee, which meant that she was uh, considered dumb, essentially. She didn't expect or assume that she should be the object of such special attention from God. But by God's sovereignty, he chose Mary to be the vessel of honor by which he would bring about the birth of his son. She also recognizes that there's going to be a change in the way things are done with this expression from this time on. She knows that once she she has been touched by the gracious hand of God, from now and forevermore, everyone will recognize the impact and the tremendous blessing that she received. Not because of who she is and not because of what she's done, but because of the immense importance of the child she is carrying. Looking at verses 50 and going to verse 53, we see Mary turn from her personal praise to God to praise for God's mercy for all who fear him. Verse 50 is a quote from Psalm 103, 17. And it is specifically directed at those who fear God. Now, what does it mean to fear God? It means that you recognize and you acknowledge God's position and authority. In Exodus chapter 1, 
when the midwives, they were told to kill any newborn son that was birthed to the Hebrews. And they refused to do so. Why? Well, in verse 17, it told us that they feared God. They didn't do what Pharaoh had commanded them to do. And he feared God, and as a result, God was good to them and established households, households for them. Don't you wish more abortionists today feared God? In fact, Proverbs 1.7, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To understand God's rightful position and authority and dominion is foundational for all other knowledge. From verse 51 through 53, there's a series of great paradoxes. There's a reversal of social positions as an exercise and a display of God's power. Those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, God will scatter in verse 51. Those who are in power will be brought down in verse 52. Those who are humble, God will exalt in verse 52. Verse 53 is a quote from Psalm 107 verse 9 which says that he will fill the hungry with good things, and the rich he will send away empty-handed. Did you know that one of the first virtues that you and I have to have as a Christian is humility? It's one of the very first ones. It has to be. Think about it. Who does a prideful person worship? Themselves. Humility is a first virtue you have to have as a Christian. When Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And guess what is the number one virtue that he mentions in verse 2? With all, what? Humility. With all humility. 1 Peter 5.6 says that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt us at the proper time. And so Mary is looking forward in the verses as a vindication of those who fear the Lord. She would be one of them. And then in verses 54 through 55, we see Mary's praise for God's work in Israel. We see the why of God's vindication for those who are the Lord's, who fear the Lord. It's because of God's covenantal mercy and his loyal love for the people of Israel. It's not because of Israel's faithfulness. It's not because they were good people, but it's because of God's faithfulness and his goodness that he will provide salvation. Again, in the Old Testament and throughout the nation of Israel's history, God repeatedly demonstrates his mercy to a disobedient nation. Isaiah 63, verse 9, it says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Jeremiah, verses, uh, chapter 31, verse 20, he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 39.25 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous 
for my name. How many times have you and I been disobedient to the Lord this week? How many times have our minds wandered away from Christ and His holiness? God is merciful. And then lastly, in verse 56, Mary stays with Elizabeth until she's full term and presumably is there until John the Baptist is born. And just as Luke ends the account of Zacharias by simply saying that he went back home, in verse 23 it says, Mary returned to her home. So what does this text tell us about Mary? Well, first of all, she's a very humble woman. She realized her need for a Savior, and she realizes that she needs God's mercy and grace. She didn't run around boasting about being the mother of the Messiah. She knows where she stands in God's economy. The second thing it tells us about Mary is that she was a scripture-saturated woman. As I mentioned before, there are roughly 15 Old Testament allusions or quotations from the law to the Psalms to the prophets within these 10 verses. Charles Spurgeon once said that John Bunyan was a walking Bible. We could fairly accurately call Mary a walking Bible. She's just full of scripture. She, her heart and mind is saturated with the word of God. The third thing we see about Mary is that she was a submissive woman. She was ready and she was willing to do whatever the Lord required of her because he had spoken. She didn't protest. She didn't question with wrong motives like Zacharias did. Instead, she willingly submitted herself to the Lord. The last part, what does this text tell us about God? Beloved, we could go on and on and on. Number one, our God is a saving God. Not only did Mary recognize her need for a Savior and she rejoiced in it, but she recognized that Jesus would be the source of salvation, not only for her, but for Israel and the entire world. Second thing is, our God is a covenant-keeping God. In terms of Old Testament fulfillment, Mary recognized that the actions that God was taking through her was a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which he had spoken through our fathers. And she recognized that the fulfillment of that covenant was coming through her, and it would be an enduring one. And then the third thing we see about God here is our God is a merciful God. Just as Mary recognized her lowly estate, her state rather, and the mercy of God to her personally, we see in the bigger scheme of redemptive history here the mercy of God on all of mankind, including us here today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.3 that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we, rec- we need to recognize as such that God providing Jesus Christ to us today is nothing but pure mercy. Why? Because God is in the heavens and he is holy and pure and undefiled. That's not true of you and I. The Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. And there's this great chasm between the holiness of God and our sinfulness, and that the only way that that chasm can be crossed is bridged by the blood of Jesus Christ. So how is your heart this morning, beloved? 
Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mary's heart was saturated with scripture. What's your heart saturated with? What have you set your affections on that is more worthy of your time than the Lord Jesus Christ? What is your mind consistently drawn to that would be more valuable than the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's our question for us today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for Mary and how she is an example to us all. A humble, willing servant. A submissive servant of yours. And one whose mind is just saturated and full of the word of God. So many times we neglect your word, God, throughout the week. We, we claim we're too busy. We've got stuff to do. We've got places to go. But Lord, help us this week to humble ourselves in your presence. To make reading your word and knowing your word a high priority in our lives. Father, this is our heart's prayer this morning. We do thank you for your faithfulness and your mercy. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we, uh, as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians. If you're already in Luke, you're almost there. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. 